I hope your fall is off to a good start. I think you'll be waking up the next several mornings with incredibly cool temperatures. The leaves are starting to turn. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but it's darker when we get up in the morning, and it's darker by the time we get home from work. And so we see the changing of the seasons taking place so quickly. We are looking at a series, uh, it's been ongoing all year, called Discovering the Mission of God. But we're in the final part of it called Discipleship. And, and one of the texts that I've chosen as kind of the theme for this whole section is what God is trying to do in my life and yours if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Notice here from 2 Corinthians 3, and we all, all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, put very simply, God's goal is to transform you and me back into his image with the help of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And we've been looking at how God does that, primarily by addressing the enemies that we face in this spiritual walk that we are traveling. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And in it, Paul is reflecting on that spiritual journey people are taking. Notice what he says about the Gentiles he's been working among. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And then he begins to describe the enemies that we all face as we walk the Christian walk. When you used to follow the ways of this world. Notice that. The ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We've already talked about the work of the Satan or the devil, the accuser. And how do, we, how do we fight that? Last week we finished it up by saying the same way Jesus did, with a thus saith the Lord. And he goes on to describe him as the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, Paul now includes himself, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh. Paul Slade a few moments ago in his communion talk talked about the fact that we're no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer enslaved to the flesh if we have given our lives to Jesus Christ. And notice, following its desires and thoughts, fascinating language there, its desires, its thoughts, like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so kind of to summarize what Paul says here, he says the three enemies we face are, first of all, the Satan, the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the flesh, that word there, the cravings of the flesh, and then the world. And, and we're going to be focusing today specifically, and for the next three or four weeks, on our battle against the flesh. Now, when you think about that battle against the flesh, notice the way Paul describes it. Gratifying the cravings. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That word flesh, the Greek word, is pronounced sarx. You see it up there, S-A-R-X, sarx. And, and that's actually the Greek spelling that you see up there. And that word in the Bible is used three different ways. First of all, the flesh sometimes means just flesh. Human or animal. Notice here in 1 Corinthians, not all flesh is the same. 
People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another, and we all know that. I mean, if you've ever eaten fish, you know that the flesh of fish is different depending on the type of fish. And, and then the flesh of animals is very different. I mean, a turkey's flesh as a bird would be very different than, say, bear flesh as an animal. And, and you can imagine all the differences. So it just refers to literal flesh. Number two, it sometimes refers to race or ethnicity. Paul talks about in Romans 9, For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ, and notice for whom? For the sake of my people, those of my own. NIV translates it race. The Greek, though, is sarks. For those of my own flesh. As a Jew, he saw the Jews as one particular type of human flesh or race. But it's the third one that's so important for this study. The carnal, sinful nature of humanity. And it's something that we all recognize. Notice again verse 3. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Translators really struggle on how to put that in English language. Greeks knew what they were talking about. But we kind of struggle with it. Notice some of the translations, and these are just out of random English versions. The old nature, the first Adamic nature, for instance. Selfish desires, sinful selves, corrupt nature. The old NIV used to say sinful nature, but in, in 2011 they went back to flesh because it was creating so much confusion. But it simply has to do with that part of us that we're all aware of. John Mark Comer, and again, much of the material I'm presenting in this part of our series this year is from a book called Live No Lies by an author named John Mark Comer. But Comer in his book says the way Satan works is he begins, first of all, with deceptive ideas. We would call them temptations. And these come from the devil. These deceptive ideas then play to disordered desires okay disordered desires that's going to be our key phrase today and of course these disordered desires are what the Bible calls the flesh and so the deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires are then normalized in a sinful society and we see it all around us I mean we see battles constantly in the area of morality of what used to be considered sin is now considered normal. What's going on here? Satan is doing his work. And of course this is what we call simply the world. Jesus would pray, I'm not asking you that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And the world there is not just, you know, the earth. He's talking about the culture of the world that we live in. But notice there right in the middle, uh, Comer calls it disordered desires, and, and there's a reason for that. Again, Paul calls it gratifying the cravings of the flesh. James, in his little epistle, he's the half-brother of Jesus, he would describe it this way. He says, listen, God doesn't tempt you. God doesn't tempt you to sin. Instead, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by, look at the language up there, their own evil desire. And they're enticed. They're captured. They're caught. 
Now, desire in and of itself is not wrong. God created all of us with desires. I mean, a lot of you got up this morning and your first desire was a cup of coffee, right? You say, Les, how do you know that? By just how many of you have cups of coffee in here right now, right? By the way, ignore mine right up here. Just ignore that, okay? Desire for a cup of coffee, there's nothing wrong with that. I had a friend this last week who went to the doctor. He loves Diet Coke. Okay? He loves it. And he went to the doctor and the doctor says, you know drinking Diet Coke only makes you want more and more sweet things. They've discovered that drinking diet drinks actually don't help you lose weight. They help you gain weight because you just crave sweet things. He says, just how, how much Diet Coke do you drink? And he said, well, I've cut back. He said, okay, what have you cut back to? He said, now I only drink a two-liter bottle a day. He said, well, how much did you drink before that? And he said, two two-liter bottles a day. And he said, how about if we just cut back to two glasses a day? And he looked at his doctor and said, are you crazy? No. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'll try, doc, I'll try. You know, there's nothing wrong with desires. The problem is when we take desires too far and they actually can become evil in nature Paul described it this way in Romans the battle that we're talking about he says so I find this law at work although I want to do good evil is right there with me Paul as Saul of Tarsus was a trained Jewish rabbi he was the best trained of, of that time period under Gamaliel, president of the Sanhedrin. And so here is a young man, he says, you know what? I, in my inner being, I wanted to do good. Notice verse 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. He loved studying scripture. I mean, he was into the Torah. He could probably quote it from front to back. But Paul said there was something else working in me. Notice, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. What Paul, once again in communion, called commitment to those habits that are not right. For instance, on Wednesday night, we're looking at 1 Timothy. And, and this last week in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that at one point in his life, he was a persecutor, he was a, a blasphemer, and he was a violent man. And here's what's crazy about that. The entire time he was those three, he also thought he was serving God. In his mind, I'm doing what's right. But he discovered that in his body, sin had taken that which was good and turned it into evil. And that's what we all struggle with. We all know the battle between desires that have gotten misplaced. James chapter 4 verse 8 would describe it this way. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands. The whole point there is purify yourself. Purify your heart, you double-minded. All of us battle double-mindedness. All of us do. Some of the Jewish rabbis called it double soul. They would say within every person is an animal soul 
and a spiritual soul, a soul from God. And those two battle each other. And we all know that. That's why that phrase a while ago, the flesh and the way it thinks. That's that kind of double-mindedness that James is talking about here. Augustine, the great uh, uh, philosopher or theologian, uh, basically the 4th and 5th century, lived in North Africa. Augustine argued that all mankind are slaves to sin, which is the result of our being slaves first to sinful lust. And then look at how he describes that. Which come from inordinate and disordered desire. Now, if you're sitting there right now going, I don't know what the word inordinate means. I didn't either. Okay? Uh, not a word that I use very often. Looked it up in the dictionary. Just to make sure. I thought I knew what it meant. And, and I was right. It simply means a desire that is it's overblown. It's out of control. It's not properly, you know, where it should be. And, and Augustine says this is the problem with us. These inordinate and disordered desires. Comer, quoting from Augustine, would say this. In the Augustinian view, the problem of human condition isn't that we don't love. It's that we love either the wrong things or the right things, but in the wrong order. <coughs> Think about that just for a moment. Here's a dad. He's got a family. But he's gotten his job way too as too important in his life and so what he begins to do is sacrifice his family for his job i don't know how many times i've heard of preachers who have confessed in in other preacher circles that i actually gave so much time to the church that i neglected my family I still remember an elder in a church where I worked at before who would tell all of us when we came on staff, do not, do not sacrifice your family for the church. Don't do it. And, and oftentimes people do that. There's an advertisement out on the television right now. I don't know if you've seen it. But a dad steps in, his daughter is in a wheelchair, she's in a room, and his dad steps in and says, so sorry I missed your program. And his daughter turns to her dad and says, that's all right. But he can, seize the, he can see the disappointment in her eyes. Just the fact that dad had placed his, his job over his daughter. The next scene you see is him taking his daughter out kayaking. And, and him canceling all of his appointments and them being out on the river. And you just kind of look at it and you're like, yes! And that's a perfect illustration of what Augustine was talking about. It's not that God doesn't want us to love. It's just that our love has got to be in proper order. And that's where Satan steps in. Satan wants your love for this job, sports, sexual immorality. I mean, you just fill in the blank. God wants your love, you know... For instance, sexual relations. God created sex. We're going to look at that here in a moment. And, and within its right framework, it's wonderful. But what happens when you get it out of order? Then it becomes destructive, which is what happens in so many people's lives. <coughs> look in Acts 13. 
Paul's preaching here, his first missionary journey. And he's going to turn to the great hero of the Israelite faith, David. And notice what he says about him. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. And I want you to look at God's testimony regarding David. What an incredible statement. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. Now, when God says that, God realizes, doesn't mean that David's not going to sin. God has a plan for David, and David fulfilled it. But David also fell short. I want you to think about David. What comes to your mind? If somebody says to you, what do you think about when you think about David? First thing that comes to my mind is the 23rd Psalm. I, I don't know of a song that's ever been written more beautiful than the 23rd Psalm because that's what it is. It's a song, six verses. And it begins with those beautiful words, The Lord is my shepherd, and I have need of nothing. I always use it at the graveside for funerals. Because it begins with God's care, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Because God, you're right there with me. And then it ends with those incredible words. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, Blake, I wish I knew how David sang it. I, I wish I knew the tune that he played on the lyre. What an incredible song. Another one that he wrote that I love so much is this one out of Psalm 63. And, and you're familiar with some of the words. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. I mean, look at his love for God. My whole being longs for you like one in a dry and parched land where there is no water. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and your glory. 19, probably 83, I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Memorial Boulevard, Church of Christ. Tulsa Soul Winning Workshop. And there's a group there that I'd never heard of by the name of Acapella. Some of y'all thinking, you're old, I am. I am, that's a long time ago. But Acapella is there, Keith Lancaster, lead singer, and and they introduce a song based on this particular song. And it's based on verse 3, because your love is better than life. Your love, God, is better than life itself. And so my lips will glorify you. Brothers and sisters, that's reality right there. There's no greater truth than that, is that our love for God should be greater than life itself. Job would say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Still remember them singing that song and me going, wow. And yet the guy who wrote this song went out one night, couldn't sleep, looked over his palace wall, and saw a young woman bathing. Now, I want you to notice the text. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Now, can I begin with a question? And that question is this. Is sexual attraction wrong? 
You know, that was one of the big struggles when, when I was in my late teens, early 20s. And, and you had it pounded in you that if you looked upon a woman and lusted after her, you'd committed adultery already with her in your heart. And, and the problem for, for guys and maybe ladies as well is that you think, okay, when is it sexual attraction that is normal, healthy, and okay, and when is it lust? And I still remember a professor pulling a bunch of us preacher guys together and said, guys, don't confuse lust and sexual attraction that is normal. Otherwise, you'll live a guilt-ridden life. And he was right. You see, David seeing a beautiful woman wasn't wrong. Sexual attraction, is it wrong? No. And, and by the way, even at this time in ancient Israel, was polygamy practiced there? And the answer is yes. David already had multiple wives, and God didn't seem bothered by that. Now, was that his purpose in creating marriage? No. And, and, and could the more wives you have, the more problems you have? Ask Solomon, his son, of course. But if David had met a beautiful woman and she was okay and he was okay, could they have gotten married? Sure they could have. Under that old covenant, that would have been okay. But you see, the problem was this. When they come back and he said, who is she? They said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Liam. Okay, so far so good. Until they said the next phrase, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was one of his commanders. By the way, Eliam was also one of his advisors. You see, at this point, now David's got a problem. You see, if his desire, if, if, if his interest in this woman goes any further, he has now disordered his relationships. He's now crossed over into one that's inordinate. It's not okay because it's going across a line you're not allowed to cross. And David now has to make a, de a decision. And we know the decision that he made. It was the fact that he's going to let an inordinate and disordered desire, what we would call lust, place the head of his love for God. The same guy who said, your love is better than life. Wasn't that night. And before we just condemn David all over the place, let's take some deep soul searching in our own lives. It may be power. It may be getting a promotion at the office that you're going to do it no matter what it costs. It may be money. It may be IRS will never notice whether I cheat on my income tax or not. Boss will never know if I take this from the office. I mean, the list goes on and on. It may be a love for something that is so good in and of itself, but you're going to elevate it so high up that it takes the place of God himself. I mean, how many families have been sacrificed on the altar of a good-paying job? I mean, that's what we've got to face. David would come back and he would deal with this writing this incredible psalm, and it's not a psalm of his love for God. Well, it is, but it's also a psalm of his repentance to God. And he pleads with God, look at the song, Create in me, God, somehow bring back a pure heart, because it's not there anymore. And if you know how wide that sin with Bathsheba became, it wasn't. 
And then he goes on and he says, renew, bring back that steadfast spirit, that spirit that had made David the man after God's own heart that was so steadfast that it all at once hit this bumpy road. And how many of our lives have not done that? I mean, we're rocking along, good relationship with God, and something happens, and then we crash and we burn. And can we, like David, say to God, will you please take me back? And then look at verse 11. Do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. What was it that allowed David to come back? And with David, I think part of the answer is this gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, it was unique to people in the Old Testament. Not everyone got it. David, though, received it. And he knew how important it was for him to remain in a relationship with God. Going back to Matthew chapter 22, when asked what's the greatest of the commandments, Jesus' response is to love God. In the words of David, your love is greater than life. Love God with your entire being. But we have to realize that in order to do that, we need a work from God. I mean, you turn over to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel says, God, we need a new heart. And God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that flesh is not the carnal nature. He's talking about a heart that's tender, a heart that literally is open to God's love. Which is why the gift of the Holy Spirit in our journey against the flesh is so important. You see, you turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says, can I tell you where agape love comes from? You see, we can love with a lot of different loves, but agape love is not possible unless you've experienced God's love. To use John's word, we love because he first loved us. Look at what Paul says. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured. I love that language. Poured. Where? Into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Which is why if you turn over to Galatians 5, what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Some would say the only fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then all of those things that flow out of love. And so, learning to love God. I think that's probably the greatest gift any of us will ever have is God pouring His love in our hearts, us receiving it, and because of that, beginning to war against the flesh so that our order of love of things gets in its proper order. Now, does that mean we'll never sin? No. I mean, as Paul said, we're going to fall from time to time. And, and, and here's the way John put it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Will there be times where we get bumpy in this walk with God? Absolutely. I hit bumps all the time. But I know of a God who loves me more than I love myself, and He keeps pouring His love in me. He keeps pouring His love in you. That's what He's promised. If you've not experienced that love, why not experience it today through obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ where you not only receive the forgiveness of your sins but the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you need to believe and be baptized, why not you do that right now as together we stand and sing.